we are living, as you know, in this prison in no good conditions. There is no hospital here. And if a coronavirus enters here, we are not talking about one or two people are going to get it. No, everybody at the same time is going to get it because everybody here is together breathing the same air. And a lot of people are going to die here. From NPR and Futuro Media, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Today, the fear of an outbreak of COVID-19 in the immigrant detention facilities run by ICE. are currently over 35,000 immigrants in detention in the United States, and most of them are in facilities under the control of ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency. Even during non-pandemic times, several of these places have been singled out for denying adequate health care to detainees. Last year, a group of advocacy and human rights organizations filed a sweeping lawsuit against ICE, pointing out major lapses in medical care in over 100 detention facilities. As the spread of COVID-19 overwhelms hospitals in some areas of the country, the situation that many immigrants and refugees in detention are facing has become an urgent concern. ICE has already started to report that some immigrants and employees have tested positive for the virus in detention. People are being given about one four-ounce tube of soap each week, which they say is not enough. They've also asked for additional supplies beyond that, like hand sanitizer and disinfectant wipes, so they can disinfect the phones in between people using them, and they're not getting those. Noah Lennard is a reporter with Mother Jones magazine. He's been following a developing story in several detention facilities all across the American South, especially in Louisiana. Noah's been in touch with detainees inside these facilities, and we're going to hear from these people as well. The situation that they describe is dire. Unsanitary conditions, overcrowded living spaces, a lack of medical personnel. Many detainees fear that they've become sitting ducks as the coronavirus closes in around them. Noah Lennard, welcome to Latino USA. Thanks for having me on, Maria. So, Noah, you've been reporting about immigration, ICE, detention facilities for a while now. But can you give us the latest? What do you know about what's happening in terms of immigrants who are uh, being held and who are worried about the spread of COVID-19? Yeah, so I've been reporting on ICE detention uh, for more than a year, and I've heard a lot of concerns during that period about inadequate medical attention, uh, ICE denying people release, leading to them to being detained for months or more than a year. But what's been new is starting about three weeks ago, I started getting at first just a trickle of calls, but in the past couple of weeks, it's become a flood. I'm getting calls all the time. Yeah, so the first call I got was uh, from the Catahoula Correctional Center, which is a for-profit jail run by a company called LaSalle Corrections. And it came from a Cuban asylum seeker who's been detained for about a year now. And I've been speaking with him for about six of those months. He asked that I not use his name out of fear of potential retaliation. Every day we listen to the news. Every day we know how dangerous the coronavirus is. That's why we are very, we are very afraid of it. 
He's calling from a for-profit jail that was built to hold low-level criminal inmates for the state of Louisiana. Um, But basically, there aren't enough criminal inmates in Louisiana because they've moved away from mass incarceration. So ICE has swooped in and started using this jail. So he's calling from a jail where you're going to have 60 or 80 people in one large room. It's very bad. The conditions here are very bad. For example, most of us are all the time with flu the time we flew because we are breathing the same air everybody is uh, for example we are we are very very close very close uh, one to another sleeping in bunk beds all sharing the same phones same showers same toilets it is um, only about time we can't get that coronavirus here inside and a lot of people are going to die here we know that he was very afraid that if the new coronavirus got into his jail, that it was going to be a massacre and that many people were going to die. So ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, is being pressured for all kinds of reasons. And it has said so far that it's going to scale back arrests, um, detentions in response to the pandemic. But is that extending... To the people who are in detention already, it would seem that they would say we should be releasing them. But is that even under discussion? It's definitely something they're being pressured to do by health experts and immigrant advocates. Oh, yeah. ICE has the authority to do something called parole, which basically just means to release people. We want uh, ICE to set us free because we are not criminals. We are not criminals. Essentially, every asylum seeker that I talk to has relatives somewhere in the United States, and they've always offered to take them in to cover their health care costs, to pay for their food, to give them housing. Our family has told the ICE they are ready to attend to us and give us the, the medicine, the food, everything. They know that we are still here. You know, without the parole, that's not fair. They absolutely have the authority to release people at their discretion. So far, they've been choosing not to, despite huge amounts of pressure to exercise that authority that they have. So ICE says on its website that it is separating people who are especially vulnerable to COVID-19. And then when it comes to social distancing, it says that the detention centers that it works with should promote social distancing as much as is possible. You know, one of the basic things around this virus is that You have to stay six feet apart from people, not be breathing on each other, not touching each other. You have to have access to soap and water and hand sanitizer, for example. So can any of that, does any of that exist right now, as you know, within these detention facilities? Yeah, the basic answer is no. I mean, first on the social distancing, I think some of the listeners may be picturing a jail that they've seen on TV where it's one or two people in a cell. That is not what these ICE detention centers are. These are big rooms with 60, 80 people in them where everyone's sleeping in bunk beds. So it, ICE social distancing is, is just impossible. In this dorm where I am now, it's around uh, 40 women. We, we are a lot of people uh, together here. That was Lady Vasquez Moreno, who's a Cuban accountant who's seeking asylum in the United States. And she's one of about six of the women in that dorm who I've spoken to. We have been quarantined since March 3. They were already dealing with a quarantine for the flu. The doctor told us, uh, some of us, uh, we have uh, uh, H1N1, the flu. Our bodies are weak. Their bodies are already weakened, both by the flu, but also what detention conditions are. The food in detention centers is notoriously bad and not nutritious. So when I ask people what they eat, they say basically bread, potatoes, 
sometimes sweet bread. They always say uh, all flour, everything's from flour. So their immune systems are already weakened. And then when it comes to cleaning supplies, I've been hearing for weeks complaints that there aren't enough. We don't have how to clean the tables, how to clean the farms. You know how dirty are the farms. If you think about it, there's only a couple telephones and every single person is making calls on those phones, touching them. There are no disinfectant wipes available to wipe it down between calls. We are living with bacteria. We don't have anything to clean. In these dorms, there's maybe about four toilets that 80 people are using, six showers that 80 people are rotating through. So they're just all touching the same surfaces all at the same time. And they've asked for disinfectant wipes to try to do a minimum. No soap sometimes. It's very hard uh, when we ask uh, the thing we need, they, uh, they say they don't have. And one of the things that was most striking in talking with Lady and other women... They all had the same fears and said the same things. And we are scared because the situation of the country, we know about the COVID-19. When they watch the TV, they see Dr. Fauci explaining the recommendations for how you stay safe from this virus. We know if uh, one uh, coronavirus comes into this center, it's going to be uh, like uh, the domino effect. ICE has said on their website that there is access to soap within its facilities. When I reached out to the GEO group, about this. They said the same thing, but did not respond to follow-up questions about whether they also sell that soap in the commissary and at what price. In fact, you would think that in detention facilities where there may be potentially hundreds of people, you would think that there would be 24-hour medical doctors on site. Um, That's not the case. The people who are on site most of the time happen to be like nurses or physician's assistants, and only when it's kind of an emergency do they call the medical doctor in, right? Yeah, so you, especially at a lot of the detention centers I've been reporting on, not only is it nurses, but it's nurses' assistants. So it's you know basically kind of the lowest level professional qualification for a nurse, people who really aren't in a position to be responding to complex cases. ICE has no condition to keep us safe. We have no the right medicine for emergency. Uh, we don't have a doctor full-time, only assistance of nurse. One of the constants of talking to people in detention is having medical requests that they submit be ignored for days. And then when they finally do, what almost happens in seems like every case of someone I talk to is they're given ibuprofen. That's basically the only thing that people ever get. And sometimes if they have mental health issues, they may be given sleeping pills or antidepressants. But those three drugs are the ones that I hear time and time again of immigrants being prescribed. So a lot of these detention facilities are run by private companies, um, part of the private prison industry now running detention facilities for immigrants and refugees. So ICE and federal agencies are facing a class action lawsuit that accuses them of disregarding the health needs of immigrants. Is that this is a lawsuit that was existing prior to COVID and has just intensified? Yes, so there was a a lawsuit, and that's an important thing to note about all of this, is that ICE detention centers and the for-profit detention centers they contract with, the health systems within them were stressed and broken long before COVID-19 hit, and this is just going to add additional stress. So what's happening here is they filed an emergency motion as part of that lawsuit you just mentioned, Maria, where they're going to push for the emergency release of people who are particularly vulnerable, so people over 60 years old or with pre-existing health conditions, of which there are many still in ICE detention centers. So. Can you help us understand, you know, this notion that, as you know, I've been reporting on this for so long, that immigrants and migrants in detention and refugees in detention are often treated uh, quite disrespectfully. What are you worried about 
what's happening right now in terms of those attitudes impacting how the people who are supposed to be caring about immigrants are actually treating them in this moment. Yeah. Sadly, two of the words that often come up in my conversations with people in ICE custody in terms of how guards treat them are they treat us like children or they treat us like animals. So last week I reported on an incident where their geo group at one of their detention centers, um, it's called the LaSalle Ice Processing Center, had brought in someone to do a presentation on COVID-19 to kind of show them that they were concerned about this and that they were taking their safety into consideration. I came in, I sat down, I started hearing people have questions, and then so many people started interrupting. We're hearing from a woman named Marlene, and she's spent the vast majority of her life in the United States. She came to the United States from Reynosa, just across the border when she was three years old. And you couldn't, um, you know, answer the question, or they couldn't answer the question, so then things started getting out of control. The women, 80 women in one room, felt that they were that Geo Group was being evasive. The officer, I don't know who they are, captain, lieutenant, people in white yeah. that were in the back, you know, standing, uh, got to the point where they said, if you guys can't, you know, in other words, be civil, then we're going to leave. The women started asking very basic and very obvious questions like, hey, you're talking about social distancing. Look at us. There's 80 of us in this room. How are we going to do social distancing when we're sleeping in bunk beds? And the detention center didn't have a good answer because there isn't a good answer. And uh, the doctor that was answering the question was kind of being evasive to some extent where she would, and then she would turn and answer somebody else's question and not really answer the other person's. So that's why she would start getting upset and say, answer my question. And so tensions rose and eventually escalated to the point where... When they opened the door, everybody was at the door already upset and they started shoving to try to get out and, you know, to kind of make a stand. And then the assistant, uh, administrative assistant, she, all I see her is just spraying. Women were pepper sprayed directly in the face during this. Then I hear everybody crowding the front window and screaming and yelling and somebody threw something at the window to like break it but obviously you can't break tempered glass or however these windows are and then the pepper spray lingered in the air in this room they locked the door left the women in the room for about an hour as women i've spoken with many of them they said women were coughing their eyes were red some fainted some of them had asthma so then i went back to my bed and uh sent a text message to my daughter they just pepper sprayed us everybody's choking gagging throwing up Help. An ICE spokesman confirmed that women were pepper sprayed at the LaSalle ICE Processing Center, saying that four women were directly pepper sprayed when they tried to force their way out of the dorm area and confirmed that there were 79 women in the room at the time. So, Noah, that sounds like the worst possible decision to make, which is to pepper spray a group of people in an enclosed area forcing them to essentially be coughing on each other and rubbing their eyes for an entire hour. I mean, this just sounds, it sounds ridiculous. It, it really does. And I would also point out about this, this was the third time in Louisiana that week that people had been pepper sprayed at detention facilities. And then there was a fourth incident on Monday where again, during a protest in Texas at another geo group detention center where people were protesting about 
the new coronavirus, people were all about 60 people were pepper sprayed in that incident. So it's part of a trend where you see people advocating for their rights, advocating for their release. And what happens is they're met with this incredibly harsh response by a private prison company. Noah Lennard, a reporter with Mother Jones Magazine, thank you so much for joining us at Latino USA and thank you for all of your reporting. Thank you so much for having me on, Maria. As of this taping, at least 13 detainees and seven detention facility employees have already tested positive for COVID-19. Coming up on Latino USA, Texas Congressman Joaquin Castro joins us and we'll take a look at the demand to release immigrants who are in the custody of ICE. Stay with us. No te vayas. Right now, every household in the country is being asked to fill out the U.S. Census. It's the form that helps us determine how voting districts are redrawn, where to build public schools and hospitals, how to spend federal money. So why are some people afraid to fill it out? We're getting into all that this week on NPR's Code Switch podcast. We've been talking about the impact that the COVID-19 pandemic is having at Immigration and Customs Enforcement detention facilities. Before the break, we heard about some of the dire conditions that detainees are facing. Some members of Congress have been vocal about this. On March 31st, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus convened a virtual press conference where they called on the federal government the Department of Homeland Security, and more specifically on ICE to release some of those in custody, starting with low-risk detainees, vulnerable immigrants, and migrant children. To hear more about those demands, we welcome Congressman Joaquin Castro. He's chairman of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. Chairman Castro, welcome to Latino USA. It's great to be with you, Maria. So we're going to talk about what's happening in terms of this pandemic and what's happening with Um, vulnerable people, particularly immigrants, immigrants in detention, uh, refugees. These are, you know, many of them very, very desperate people. So when the coronavirus pandemic reached the United States, the first reaction of ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency back in March, was to say that it that it was going to scale back arrests in response to the pandemic. I mean, that's the first thing we heard. Were you looking out for that? And has it happened? Yeah, you know, I actually thought that their first response was the correct one for public safety and the humane thing to do. Um, But after that, it seemed as though the White House, whether it was President Trump or Stephen Miller, uh, jumped all over ICE and they reversed their position and they continued to do, and as far as I can tell, have continued to do interior enforcement. And that's been very troubling because you still have about 35,000 people who are in ICE detention. And every day we see new cases of either ICE personnel or detainees who are infected with the coronavirus. And we've also made the case to 
HHS about the children who are in their so-called shelters. And HHS is the Department of Health and Human Services, and they're responsible specifically for for the children, right? That's right. Uh, I remember going to one of these facilities, and there were uh, well over 150 kids in the same room, this large room, but stacked from bed to bed. And so whether it's HHS facilities or ICE detention facilities, the federal government needs to place these folks somewhere else. And, you know, what's remarkable is that five years ago, many of these folks would not even have been in ICE detention, for example. They would have been placed with family members as they go through the asylum process. And so there are a lot of folks who like to use this idea of these people being all criminals or rapists or murderers, and that's just not the case. The analysis that I'd seen said that about 10% of the folks that are in detention have what ICE considers to be a serious criminal background. Uh, And that's why I say if there are folks who are an imminent threat or could be an imminent threat to public safety, then you go in front of a court and you make that case. But otherwise, I think the default is that you've got to get people out of that situation because you're playing Russian roulette with their lives. So as the chairman of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, um, the caucus did call for the Department of Homeland Security and of course, ICE is a part of DHS, to release non-priority and low-risk detainees, vulnerable immigrants, migrant children who are in U.S. custody. Have you had to make that demand before? Well, look, we disagree with um, most of the way that the administration, the Trump administration, has handled detention. Detention in this country, um, ICE detention, HHS detention for children, has become a multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, it's an industry where a lot of people are making big money off of it. So we've, we have disagreed strongly with uh, President Trump and his policies. And even before that, disagreed with some of the Obama administration policies. And we're also vocal about that. Does that mean, Chairman, that you're basically saying you don't have a lot of hope from this administration in doing anything in terms of this call for, I think the hashtag is release them all, you know, protests in Southern California, um, in cars, near detention facilities, asking for them to be released. Are you saying that you you don't have any expectation that the administration will respond to the Congressional Hispanic Caucus? Well, you know, I always try to hold out hope. Uh, I always try to believe that, that what we're working towards is possible. Um, you know, if we go through this period and the worst happens and there are folks that die in ICE detention, or children that die at HHS, uh, would it surprise me? To be honest, no, it wouldn't. It wouldn't surprise me because this president has been especially cruel in how he's treated people. But I do still have hope and I hold out hope that folks in the administration will prevail upon the president to do the right thing. So the issues that migrants, refugees are facing not only um, are happening within the United States, but as you know, the Trump administration has now delayed court hearings for asylum seekers who were sent to Mexico to wait for their cases. This is the so-called Remain in Mexico program. So the administration is saying that this is because of concerns about the coronavirus pandemic. So what happens now in terms of these asylum seekers who quote unquote did it the right way and have been told to wait in Mexico? And now they're being told 
you're just going to have to wait more. What what is the what does this look like? Well, I think, you know, in the immediate moment, I think many people understand that the normal functions of government have been somewhat disrupted. Uh, so that that part is understandable that a hearing would get pushed back a week, two weeks or some period of time. What I'm concerned about is that once this moment has passed us uh, and the immediate danger of the pandemic is gone, that the Trump administration is going to try to make permanent some of the changes that they have instituted now. And so, for example, as you mentioned, halting court hearings, uh, they could drag their feet on starting those up again. Or uh, anybody who comes to claim asylum, sending them right back uh, without any due process. Again, they could drag their feet and keep that as try to keep it as a more permanent fixture. I think that's what we're going to have to be especially vigilant about. So one thing that has happened during this pandemic is that many people in the United States, um, I think, I'm hoping, are really looking at in the ways that which farm workers and food service workers, restaurant workers, supermarket workers, um, you know, many of these essential workers, the people who are delivering food to your house, pizzas in New York City, et cetera, you know, many, many of them are Latinos and Latinas. You still see them here in New York City riding their bikes, delivering food to New Yorkers who who won't leave their apartments and rightly so. But you are urging Congress to pass a follow-up to the relief and stimulus law that expands support for all Latinos. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, there are uh, several different priorities that the Congressional Hispanic Caucus has going into what will be a fourth round of uh, stimulus relief for the country. And a few of them, one of them is Puerto Rico. I mean, you have uh, a place that is still reeling from Hurricane Maria and then severe earthquakes that uh, needs extra help because they've been dealing with those things. And now with this virus... And the Congress should take care of Puerto Rico. Uh, And a second thing is, as you mentioned, we found that 84% of Latinos in the United States do not have jobs that allow them to work from home. So that means you have 84% of the Latino workforce that's still out there working. And so we and many others believe that in the next round, these folks who are essential workers, farm workers, grocery store clerks, uh, healthcare workers, certainly uh, the garbage men and women, uh, the people that still are going to work and making sure that everything functions, that they should receive a kind of hazard pay from their government or their company as a recognition of the sacrifice that they're making during what is a very dangerous time to be out and about and working. Uh, And so we're going to be working with Democratic leadership to try to get that done uh, as part of the coronavirus relief package. And it has been both ironic and very beautiful to see people now realize that a lot of the folks who for years didn't get the respect that they deserved, farm workers, sanitation workers, others, have now become, it's clear, because of this pandemic, essential. That's what they always were. But it's much clearer now that they are essential. Joaquin Castro, Congressman, Chairman of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, thank you so much for joining me on Latino USA. Thank you.
Joaquin Castro is a member of the U.S. House of Representatives for Texas' 20th Congressional District, and he's the chairman of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. And a quick update, after this episode was recorded, Immigration and Customs Enforcement started releasing some people in Louisiana and a few other states with medical conditions that may make them vulnerable to COVID-19, but most immigrants remain in detention. This episode was produced by Miguel Macias and Alisa Escarce and edited by Luis Treyes and Sofia Palizacá. The Latino USA team includes Antonia Cerejido, Janice Yamoca, and Alejandra Salazar, with help from Joanne Luna and Raúl Pérez. Our engineers are Stephanie Lebeau and Julia Caruso. Additional engineering this week by Leah Shaw. Our director of programming and operations is Natalia Fidelholz. Our digital editor is Amanda Alcántara. Our intern is Julia Rocha. Today, we say goodbye to another wonderful intern, Julia Inés Esparza, who's heading back to Northwestern University in Chicago digitally for her last semester of college. We'll miss you, Julia Inés. Thank you for all of your hard work and for your smile. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. If you like the music you heard on this episode, stop by latinousa.org and check out our weekly Spotify playlist. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us again on our next episode. And in the meantime, I'll see you on all of our social media. Hasta la próxima. Ciao. Funding for Latino USA's coverage of a culture of health is made possible in part by a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Latino USA is made possible in part by W.K. Kellogg Foundation, a partner with communities where children come first, and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Next time on Latino USA, we explore intuition, the science behind it. You use emotional kind of a memory to guide on decision. And how intuition is a guiding principle behind a Latinx feminist movement. It's just really difficult times that need not just political responses, but spiritual responses. That's next time on Latino USA.